0: Glad to see you. Thanks for joining with us to worship. I just keep thinking, uh, no matter if you're here or if you're joining us online, I keep thinking of that uh, Hebrews 10 verse, you know, that we are not going to give up. Uh, we're not going to give up meeting, as some of them in the habit of doing, but we're going to continue to meet together and encourage one another all the more as we see the day uh, approaching. That day approaching could either be when we all get to be together again for worship, or what that's referring to, Jesus comes back and I'll tell you, I wouldn't be disappointed. Come Lord Jesus, uh, come quickly please, uh, we, need, we need your help. But uh, thank you so much. I know you've gone through some different protocols, et cetera, uh, to be here, getting tickets, all those wonderful things. Uh, But our our elders are are doing fantastic. They're talking to medical officials about uh, how we should meet the different protocols that we have, and I think they're doing a great job uh, leading our church, and thank you for, uh, as you know, this information changes daily. So we are on our toes trying to communicate that to you as best I can. I joked in the video I sent out this week that, you know, in seminary, I wasn't given the book, How to Lead the Church Through a Pandemic in 2020. You know, that that book doesn't exist. I I really think I fooled some people on that. Uh, They were like, really? Is there really that book? No, the book does not exist. There's no blueprint. There's no playbook for this. We're making it up as we go, as we follow the Spirit of God and uh, certainly uh, wise people's advice. So thank you very much. Thanks for hanging in there with us. Speaking of a book, There was a book written a a while ago, it's called A Man's Search for Meaning, and it was uh, written by a man named Viktor Frankl, and I don't know how many of you know Viktor Frankl. Uh, Viktor Frankl was a Jewish uh, psychotherapist, basically, Uh, and Viktor Frankl was a prisoner in a concentration camp during World War II. Uh, he was actually in Auschwitz and survived Auschwitz. It certainly, uh, helped counsel people there in Auschwitz through those very tragic circumstances. But helped counsel people there and, and survived and, and got out and uh, wrote that book, A Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, in it, he talked about one section of it. He talked about uh, the four different kind of categories of the way people handled that trial of a being in a concentration camp. Obviously, very horrific circumstances, the things that were done to them, the things that, that they saw. But he kind of split up people into four basic categories. He said, uh, category one of how people handled that trial was that they, they basically, his word that he used for them was, they turned brutal. That they basically, they got into this mode of survival of the fittest. That they did what was best for themselves in their own self-interest. That they would literally trample over people to get things that they want or they needed. Whether it was food or a better bed. It doesn't matter. But it was they became cruel. They They didn't care about anybody else's needs but their own. Then he talked about the second category of people. Those were the people that basically resigned themselves to the fact of, I'm in a concentration camp. This isn't going to get any better. Uh, you know, uh, this, is, this is where it goes. He said that they had zero motivation to continue to live. He said even it, when they were beaten by the, the guards that they weren't motivated at all. It, just, it was what it was. Then there was category three, and this is the the third category of people is actually where hope began. These people had hope, but the hope that they had was a hope to return to normal things. He said these people had hope that, that, that when they would get out of the concentration camp, that they would return to the normal things that they used to do that they would return back to their restaurants that they used to go to, that they would return to their job, that they would begin to gather with friends again, that they would go back to life as they once knew it, back to normal. And he said that many of those people that, that had that hope, some of those people, not many, but some of those people who had that hope in the third category actually survived that concentration camp. But once they got out, they realized they didn't go back to those things that the restaurants weren't there, that the gathering with friends, that even when they gathered with old friends, they didn't have the same sort of spark, the same sort of joy. They didn't get to go back to their normal jobs, So everything that they had hoped for wasn't realized. And he found out that those people were despondent and actually in despair, some of them actually even taking their own lives, which is just tragic to think that they came through the concentration camp with, with wonderful hope that got them through, but then the hope on the other side didn't deliver, and it was worse than what they had wanted it to be. Then there was a category four. This category four were people that had hope, but they didn't have hope for the things of this world. Uh, he called it that they had a hope that transcended their circumstances, a hope that transcended their, their normal lives. These were people that either lived for a spiritual reason or they lived for a loved one that they would hope to see. If they lost a loved one in that concentration camp, they would say, I want to persevere because I know that they're you know, watching me. They're looking down on me or whatever. But they had a hope that wasn't, that this world didn't understand. It wasn't confined to earthly circumstances. And he found that those people that had that kind of hope that once they got out of the concentration camp and ended up having some sort of a a life, some sort of a life that had some meaning and some purpose. In fact, in his book he says, life only has meaning if we have a hope and a meaning that suffering and even death cannot destroy. He talked about this hope that is out of this world The hope that gives us meaning, that transcends this suffering, that can persevere through it. And I was thinking about these four categories of people, and one thing I need to say up front, I certainly do not believe that what we're experiencing now compares in any way to what folks in a concentration camp suffered. No way. But I will say that I have seen people fall into those four categories of how they're handling the trials these days. So think about it. If you think about when the, this first, especially the whole COVID thing hit at the very beginning back in March, uh, we saw people fall into that first category, which was this self-preservation. This I'm going to look out for myself. Man, I was at Costco the weekend that the whole thing started shutting down. It was a madhouse. I, I, I you know, think about what did everybody do? Everybody went for toilet paper. I actually, I was in line at Costco, fun fact, didn't share this in first service, but uh, fun fact, was in line and I saw somebody had like one of those huge cases of toilet paper. And I was like, where did you get that? Literally, praise God, a lady behind me, she's got to be a Christian. She said, there's a case over there. And I'm like, go. And so we ran and got that case. And and Folks, we literally just opened that case of toilet paper. We have had plenty of toilet paper. If you need any, you can have it. You can't borrow it, you can have it. I, I promise. But it reminded me of just that time of everybody was it was looking out for themselves. It was this is self-preservation. You know, when I would go to the grocery store, they would limit, I mean there were signs, limiting canned, canned goods, how many you could take. It was all of this, I'm gonna do what is best for me. I'm gonna look out for my own self and we've seen cruelty and brutality come out in our world these days. Just how people are handling this trial. Category two, people who are, who are resigned. There have been plenty of people that are just resigned to, you know, gosh, the, the world is awful. There's nothing I can do to change it. And they're just, they, they're depressed. They're just despondent. And, and my heart goes out to, the, to those folks. Then there are the, the third category. And I think a lot of us fit into this third category. I even find myself, falling into the third category, where I hope for things of this world to return back to normal. I mean, we we all kind of hope that. Like, I I would hope for the day when this would, when this place would be filled back up again, just the way that a normal 11 o'clock service is. When we can have a full choir and orchestra, when we can go out to eat with friends, when we don't have to wear masks, where we don't have to stay socially distant, where we can hug one another, where we can have a college football season. All of those earthly things, I certainly hope for. But let me tell you, we are not going back to some of the ways things were before COVID. A a leadership quote that I learned a long time ago is, the job of a leader is to define reality. So let me define reality for you. We're not going back. There are some things, and I don't have anything in mind in particular that I'm thinking of. I'm not trying to scare you or anything, but I'm just trying to define reality. There are some things that are never going to be normal again. They're never going to be the way that they used to be. And you need to just go ahead and prepare emotionally for that fact. There are things that are going to be different. And we can't hope for us just going back to the way things used to be because it's probably not going to go back to that we might miss a college football season. We might have to wear masks in certain places that we go. We might have to be limited to how many hospital visits we can do or how many guests a hospital uh, patient can have at a certain time. Some of those things are just gonna be the new normal. And so we can't put all of our eggs in the basket of, well, once we get a vaccine for this whole COVID-19 thing, then life will just go back to the, the way it was. We can't have this earthly hope. That's why we need this fourth category of hope, which I aspire to, I admit, uh, on bad days, I don't get to that, but that's this hope that transcends this world. That's this hope that understands that this world isn't all that, that, that there is to offer. That's the hope that we have to have And that's the hope that we're going to talk about today. So if you would, open your Bibles to 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter. It's toward the end in the New Testament. If you get to Revelation, just open to the back to Revelation, then start thumbing forward and you'll find it pretty quickly. So 1 Peter, we're going to start a new series today called Hope Refined. And the reason why I've called it Hope Refined is because that's what Peter is going to do throughout this entire book. Peter is going to challenge us to refine our hope, that our hope would be not in things of this world, but our hope would be in things above, as Paul says in Colossians, set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. And our hope is going to be refined by the things that we go through in this world, just the way like we're handling trials today. Now, Peter knows about trials. He's experienced many of them. If there's any disciple that we can all relate to, it's Peter. Peter's been through many ups and downs. Now, he may have had higher highs than we've experienced, and, but he's probably also had lower lows than we've experienced. This is the apostle. This is the disciple that, that walked beside Jesus during his ministry. This is the one who, remember, I mean, he walked on water with Jesus but then he also denied Jesus you know, three times. This is the one who saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. I mean, he was transfigured before his, his eyes, but then he doesn't believe in him so much so that he tells the other disciples, let's just go back and go fishing. This is the one who saw the empty tomb. He, he saw that Jesus was alive and resurrected, yet he's the one that Jesus has to say, do you love me? Three times. I mean, this is the one who has gone through highs and he's gone through lows. He's experienced trials throughout his walk with Jesus, yet Jesus has been faithful to him the entire time. And it's refined his hope, not in uh, this kind of impulsive uh, spiritual way where he just has a little spurt, but he has this fortitude that he's gotten over the years where now he's the one who preached at Pentecost at the beginning of Acts. He's done wonderful things for the church, and now he's an apostle to the Jews. In fact, that's how he begins 1 Peter 1, is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, apostle, remember, is a messenger, but to have the term apostle means that you had to have been with Jesus. So this is the Peter that had walked with Jesus. And the year now is about 63 AD. Now, some of you know uh, what was going on in the Roman Empire. Nero was in charge of the the empire at that time. And uh, pretty soon after 63, he's going to make a basically a federal decree where he's going to start persecuting Christians as the government. But right now, In 63 AD, he hasn't gotten there, but Christianity is very unfavorable to the society at that time because Christianity is very misunderstood. They're very misunderstood and therefore put on the outskirts of any kind of Roman culture, any kind of life. They are ostracized from the marketplace. They're discriminated against. Uh, they, they are, they're just marginalized in, in the entire society. No one understands them. The things that they're beginning to say just don't make sense. I mean, they're sharing a supper where they're eating the body and blood of Jesus. They, like, like they just sound so weird to the world. Just, just, just so odd. They don't know how to take them. They don't know how to respond to them. They don't know how to act. These Christians are now living in a sacrificial manner toward one another. This just doesn't fit in the worldly system. And so everybody starts stiff-arming Christians, and that's the persecution that they're beginning to face as people live differently. But now what's going on is he's Uh, He talks about how they don't belong. If you look at it, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, in verse one, he says, to those who are elect exiles, and I love that term, how he addresses the folks that he's writing to, to the elect exiles. Um, That term can also be translated a little bit differently as resident aliens. To those of you who are resident aliens, To those of you who feel like you don't belong, to those of you who know that this world is not your home, that's who he's writing to. And he actually uses a really interesting term here. Uh, He says, to the elect exiles of the dispersion, uh, dispersion he, he's hinting at remember Peter was an apostle to the Jews Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles so Peter an apostle to the Jews remember the Jews back in the Old Testament when they were disciplined by God and spread out by the Babylonians even they were called the diaspora those who had been dispersed they could no longer stay in Israel so they are the dispersed in the Old Testament. That, that was God's people who could no longer gather together again for worship. And he's talking about those who are believers these days are dispersed. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't meet together. They couldn't really formalize their worship because they were being persecuted. Now, hey, if this doesn't apply to today, to those of us who are dispersed, to the dispersion, I don't know what does. We've all been dispersed, but Peter is writing to encourage us. In 1 Peter 5, verse 12, he he states the purpose of the book. If you go to the end, he says, I'm writing to encourage you. I want to encourage you as those who are resident aliens, God's elect exiles, those who are of the dispersion. In this specific group that he mentions, the cities are in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And the order in which he mentions them is the way that a messenger would go around and take a, a letter, a, an epistle that was written. So he's writing to this specific group in Asia Minor, but they're dispersed. They're, they're, they can no longer meet together. And he's saying, I'm writing to encourage you because you are a resident alien. You are a stranger of this world. You don't belong. What you're feeling is valid. You feel like you don't fit? Guess what? You don't. You're not of this world. And he wants us to to cling to that hope that this world is not all there is. And so he starts off this epistle to say that you have a different hope than anybody else has. You have a different hope that should inform your faith, that will help you endure these trials, not just looking forward to going back to normal, not just looking forward to going back to your favorite restaurant, but looking even beyond that, having a hope that's out of this world. And that's how he begins. You see, he tells them that God gives us a hope that transcends all of our temporary circumstances. We have a hope that transcends all of our temporary circumstances. If you look at verses 3 through 5, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope. And I'm going to explain that in just a second. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, Undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power and being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So, in order to encourage these resident aliens, these elect exiles of the dispersion, he says, Guess what? You have a living hope. And the way that you have a living hope is through your rebirth in Christ. Remember, when, you, when we place our trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, his death, burial, and resurrection, we are born again. We are born again into Christ, into a new family, into a new relationship with him. The old is gone, the new has come. And he says through that resurrection, through the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection that's therefore promised to us, we have a living hope. What is that living hope? Wasn't rhetorical. It's Jesus. If you're in church, guys, the answer is always Jesus, okay? He is our living hope. Why? Because he's alive. Look back at verse 3. It says, to the one who has been through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, Peter saw this. Remember, he was at the empty tomb. So he knows that Jesus was resurrected. Therefore, he is alive. He is living. Because he is living, he has paved a path for us that we know that we will one day be resurrected also. Remember, that's what, that's what Jesus tells him. I am the resurrection and life. Even though, you're de- even though someone dies, they don't die, they live. We go from life to life. That's what he's telling them. That's the hope that we have, this living hope in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is alive. That's why our hope is still alive for what is to come. But we also have a living hope, not just because Jesus is alive, but because his word is alive. Remember Hebrews 4.12, that his word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's speaking to us today, just like it's speaking to our circumstances today. So we have a living Savior. We have a living word, which means our hope is alive. Our hope can transcend our temporary circumstances. And I think he's contrasting this hope, this living hope, with other hopes that are finite to this world. Hope that the things of this world would change. But remember, things of this world will come to an end. Things of this world will not always be. That's a dead-end hope because this world will end. Jesus will make a new heaven and a new earth. This, this, the, things that, the way that things are, are right now is not the way that God intended it to be. And to put our hope in these things is never going to satisfy. It's going to lead to a dead end. That's why we need a living hope, a hope that's out of this world, a hope that's still alive, a hope that transcends, that, that helps us to persevere through the things that we're going through. Not just say, I hope that I get this and then as soon as we get that, it doesn't turn out to be what we hoped. That's dead end. We need a hope beyond that. So I want I to describe what, how you know if you have a living hope or a dead hope. And a really easy way to determine that is this: A living hope grows while dead-end earthly hope diminishes. A living hope grows while a dead-end earthly hope diminishes. Let me explain. You know this. Anything that is living grows or should be growing. If something is dying, it's diminishing. If you have a plant at home, if it's living, it's growing. If it's dying, it's shrinking. It's diminishing. Same with our hope. If you have hope that is living, then your hope these days should be growing, But if your hope is in things of this world, then your hope is probably diminishing. And I've seen that to be true. As people have, as we've all been going through many trials today, if people are putting their hope in things of this world, they are very despondent. If you think that if our hope is in, gosh, next week we're going to get a vaccine and that's going to fix everything. Or, hey, we're going to, you know, the government is going to fix this. Or we just need to uh, elect this president next cycle. Or we need to uh, have, uh, you know, th- this group step in and do that. If we have our hope in things of this world, your hope is diminishing. You are freaking out right now if, if your hope is in things of this world. And I, and I don't blame you for that. You should. Because there isn't a whole lot of hope in those kind of things. I, I get that. But if your hope is in Jesus, in a living hope, then your hope should be growing right now. And, and I'll be honest, I vacillate between those. I, I do. But on a good day, when I am trusting in the living hope of Jesus, then what I'm beginning to think is, you know what? The darker it gets, the brighter he shines. That maybe God can use this time to show people that the things that they had hoped for, the things that they had lived for in this life, there's, they're finite. They're never going to satisfy. They're going to end. And maybe God would use that to show them how, how, how useless those things are, how, how vain those things are. And they would turn to Him, that they would realize that He's the only thing that can satisfy. God can use this time. And when I think about it that way and how God can use this to refine people's hope, to bring people to salvation, to refine his church, to keep us more focused, to propel us further and deeper, to shine brighter for him during darker days, that's when I have hope. And my hope begins to grow because my hope is in Jesus. But the only way that we start to put our hope in Jesus is oftentimes when we get our hope refined, And that's when that's how God refines our hope is through trials. See, God uses trials to refine our hopes into an eternal living hope. God uses these trials into an eternal living hope. That's what he talks about there in verses six and seven. He says, "In this, you rejoice." Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What Peter is telling the church and those who are dispersed, those believers, is that God can use trials to refine your faith so that you stop putting your hope in things of this world. You know, I I understand why people put things, their hope in things of this world, especially if they're not believers. Because if they're not believers, then this world is all that they have. And and so they're gonna fight for it tooth and nail. And and I get it. I, I understand that. But... I was talking with Bill Egner, our executive pastor, and he mentioned something that a DTS prof said a long time ago. There was something to this. I'm going to Cody phrase it here, which I think makes it better. Uh, I'm just kidding. But basically what he was saying was, for those who don't know Christ, this is as close to heaven as they're going to get. For those who do know Christ, this is as close to hell as they're ever going to get. So if this is as close to heaven as non-believers get, man, I totally understand it. I understand why they fight for this and everything that it is. And I'm not saying that we should leave the world to its own. I'm saying that we should be salt and light in the, dark, in the darkness. We should be a city on a hill, a, a place that offers eternal, everlasting hope. But I also don't want us to put all our hope in the things of this world because this is as close to hell as we're going to get. God has, a, God has a better place for us. We are, we are resident aliens. We are elect exiles. And God is using the trials that we're facing right now to say, don't put all your eggs in this basket at all. And he talks about how he uses those trials to, to bring out a genuineness of our faith. And I put this on your sermon notes. It's in kind of a little gray box. I just want to go through very quickly how God uses trials in our lives. Trials that you're facing today, trials you may have faced or will face in the future. But what he tells the church is that trials are inevitable, but they should inspire submission to God. Trials are inevitable. We're all going to face them. Why? Because we live in a broken world. This is not the way that God intended it to be. That's why he's working to restore and bring a new heavens and a new earth later on. So trials are inevitable, but he wants us to learn to submit to him. If you think about the way that trials are, are used by God, in fact, it's funny, the word trials that are, that's used here that, first, that Peter uses, that word, every time it's used in the New Testament, it's used to talk about a fork in the road where you can divert from your faith or you can live out your faith. So he's talking about these trials that come along, which way are you gonna go? It's the choice. Are you gonna say, oh my gosh, I'm not gonna live for God, I'm gonna live for this world, or I'm gonna live by faith in him. It's this fork in the road. And he says, when you encounter these trials, what he wants you to do is have faith and submit to God. Because throughout the New Testament, when trials come, we see that God uses them in various ways uh, to, to learn to submit to him. The first is sometimes discipline. He wants to discipline us. But remember, God disciplines those he loves. If you're being disciplined by God, he loves you. Another way that he uses trials is it's, it's pre- preventative. It prevents us from going further into sin. If you remember when Paul is talking about the thorn in his flesh, why does he say that God gave him that thorn in his flesh? The answer is not Jesus. But the answer is because he said it was to keep him from becoming prideful. To keep him from sin. So this trial was to keep him from going down another road of sin. Or sometimes God uses trials so, to prepare us for future ministry. When, when Paul's talking about to the church in Corinth, he says, comfort others with the comfort that you yourself has received." have received. So we go through a trial and we're comforted by God so that therefore we're prepared to do future ministry and comfort others in their trials. So God can use those trials in our lives. We just need to learn to submit to him and learn the lesson that he's trying to teach us. Because God doesn't want to leave us in a trial. My, my opinion, from the character of God, Cody's opinion, I don't think God leaves us in a trial longer than he has to. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's what a loving parent does. I think he's a loving heavenly father. You know, if, if I'm disciplining you know, one of our boys, you know, I don't want to discipline them beyond what they need. I just want them to learn their lesson. That's all. I just want to learn that you can't do that. Once they learn that, great. Let's go back to normal life. I think, I'm not God, but I just think God treats us like a loving parent does. He's not gonna keep us there longer than he has to. He just wants us to learn to submit. Second, trials are heavy and inspire hope in God. I want to highlight this because the Christian view of trials is not to be trite. Just because we're Christians, it doesn't mean that trials don't hurt. It doesn't mean that we can't experience grief in this life. In fact, he says, though you are grieved here, that word grieve that he uses is from, uh, it's, it's used in two specific places that, that are meaningful uh, to, to this. Context: The first one is it's used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he's about to go to, to the cross. And he says his heart is grieved. You know how heavy he is where he starts sweating drops of blood. I mean, it's just, it, it, there's this heaviness to him. The other place that that word is used, grieved, is when it's talking about saints who have gone on to be with the Lord in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where it's talking about the, the rapture of the church. And so it's this, man, I'm grieved at the loss. It's it's heavy. A Christian view of trials isn't just, well, get over it, God's good. You know, oh, he'll work all things together for good. Absolutely he will. But it's, there is a heaviness to it. And I don't think this passage sidesteps heaviness. I think it acknowledges it and says, that's why we've got to put our hope in the Lord. I, I read a, a, a preacher who said, said this this week, that Christians should be the saddest people and the happiest people in the world. We should be the saddest because we know what could be. And we should be the happiest because we know what will be. And I thought, man, that's so true. It acknowledges the heaviness of the broken world. It's, it's okay to be sad because we know what could be. But it's also to be happy and hopeful because we know what God will bring about. Next, he says that trials are varied, but they... D- inspire a dependence upon God he said when you go through various trials this that word means manifold it, it, it just means uh, different kinds different uh, colors of trials whether you're having a happy day a blue day you're feeling blue today it's just all these different kinds of trials it's not specific to persecution it's financial trials relational trials uh, career trials it doesn't matter what it is And he says, when you go through that, it's to inspire dependence upon God. Because guess what? You can't just say, I've taken care of that problem. (laughs) I'm done. I don't have to depend on God anymore. You got me out of that pickle. As soon as you get out of that pickle, you're back in another one. (laughs) Because you have various trials. And that, that requires and inspires a dependence upon God to always say, God, it's a new day. I need you. I need you every hour. Every hour I need you. It just inspires this dependence upon God. Next, trials are seasonal and inspire trust in God. When he talks about how you go through various trials, and he says, even though now for a little while, if necessary, and that's that if necessary. Remember, a little while, it's seasonal if necessary, as long as you need to learn that lesson, whatever God's trying to do to refine your hope. But he says, just for a little while, a season, which is so incredibly hopeful for me, to know that the, the, the tough seasons that I go through in my life, it's not forever. Gosh, remember, we, I've, I've talked about that in a sermon before. Anyone can do anything for a defined period of time. But it's when we don't know that defined period of time that we li- then lose hope. We, we, we need to know that God has an end to that season, a trial. Maybe that's him coming back, praise God, come Lord Jesus. Maybe that's a circumstance that changes. I don't know what that is, but it's seasonal. It's a time period. It's time bound. And I remember a, a quote a long time ago that I learned of when you can't see his hand at work, like when you can't see his hand, you don't know when, it's, when he's going to put an end to that, when he's going to put his hand over that and say, stop that. When you can't see his hand, trust his heart. His heart is not to leave you there longer than you've got to be there. So when you can't see his hand, trust his heart. They're seasonal, if for a time, if necessary. And then finally, trials are refining and inspiring perseverance with God. He uses this, uh, this image of a, a, a metalsmith or a goldsmith refining gold. And remember, gold was the most precious thing on the earth then, and in many cases still is today. And he talks about how he's refining the fire just like our faith is refined. And what is that doing? The goldsmith would put it into the fire, impurities would boil to the top, they would skim off the impurities and put it back into the fire. Skim off impurities, put it back into the fire. There's this constant process to purify the gold just the way tri- that's all trials are in our life. Refining the impurities of our faith and saying our hope shouldn't be here. Our hope should be there. Our hope should be in heaven. That's why it's a living hope, a place that is alive, where he's preparing a place for us, John 14. That's what he's trying to do. And remember, what what happens with the refiner's fire, just the images that pop up in my mind here is certainly a trial by fire. It hurts. I know it hurts, but it's for your good. But remember, when gold is is refined, do you know what happens the, the hotter that gold becomes and the more pure that gold becomes? the softer it becomes the soft it, our hearts should be softened toward the lord not hardened toward him by our trials but softened as we are refined in our faith you see a living hope seeks what not how it can get out of trials now, certainly i don't want you to be in trials i don't i don't wish that for you i don't pray that for you i would love for you to get out of trials but i should in my own life, pray, God, what do you want me to get out of this? Not how do I get out of this? What, what do you want to teach me? See, because when gold is being refined, a goldsmith knows that it is pure when he can see his own reflection back. That's what God, that's what God wants to see in us. He wants to see us reflecting him as he refines our faith. That's what he's trying to do in our lives. is Refine your faith and refine mine. So start saying, God, what do you want me to get out of this? Not how can I get out of this? You see, with Jesus as our focus, our living hope can outlast and overcome our trials. If you have a living hope, then we can outlast this trial and we can overcome whatever trial comes in various ways through seasonal times, whatever comes around the corner. Folks, we are not returning back to normal, but we're going to get through this. God has got this. God has got us. God has got you. Even go back. If you go back where it talks about that God is guarding our inheritance, that is imperishable, what does he talk that he's guarding? He talks about us. It's being guarded. He's guarding us. And that's a present verb there that's being used, which means he's still guarding us. He's continually guarding us. He's continually watching over us. God's got us. We're going to get through this. We're going to be his church, and he's going to use it for our good. And so what we've got to do is what it says in verses 8 and 9. It says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I know that you can't see him now, but we believe in him. We believe that he's alive. I know that you haven't seen him, but we still love him. And we love him because we know who he is and what he's done for us and what he will do for us in the future. You know I was thinking about this verse, and I thought about 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Many of you know it as the love chapter, and it goes through, but after it goes through, after you know, love is patient, love is kind, love is, doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not rude, it's not proud, all those things, if you remember what Paul goes into, remember he talks about what you see now is just a shadow of what's to come. Remember? Do you remember this? And he says, when I was a child, I thought like a child, but now I'm an adult. I think like an adult. I've matured in my faith, not putting hope in the things of this world. And remember, what does he say that endures? Faith, hope, and love. What do you see in these two verses? You see faith. He says, though you don't see him, you believe in him. You see love. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. What's the hope? It's Jesus. Faith, hope, and love will endure. And that's what gives us hope to overcome and outlast these trials because we have a living hope. You see, a living hope rejoices in an inexpressible way that brings heaven to earth. And I know that's a weird way to say that. But the reason why we have an inexpressible joy, just like he talks about uh, in verses eight and nine, is because it can't be defined by circumstances of this world. People go, why are you so happy? Why are you so hopeful? Do you not see what's going on in our world? Yeah, I don't live for this world. I know that's inexpressible. I know it doesn't make sense if you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't have a living hope. I get it. But that's what's inexpressible. That's what gives me joy. That's what gives me hope. And when we have that kind of hope, you get a taste of heaven. You get a little taste of that fellowship with God. I love the Charles Spurgeon quote. It's at the bottom of your sermon notes. But he says, little faith will take your soul to heaven. Remember, just the mustard seed, just a little hope, saying, I I hope I place my faith in Jesus. He says, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. You gotta have a living hope. It's the only way. That's what he offers to us through Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you are our living hope, that you are alive and active, that you are resurrected from the dead, that you do intercede on our behalf that you show yourself mighty and powerful in our life. And Lord, I pray that you would refine our faith, that you would burn off the dross, that we wouldn't have put our hope only in things of this world, but that we would put our hope in you, the living hope. May that give us joy inexpressible. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.